0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the China Manufacturing Decoded Podcast. This is episode 106 already. And this is Renault Andoran here, your, your host for today. And I'm going to be talking with Andrew Hubert, who I've been following for a while. He he lived in China for, for many years. He actually wrote a few books, including one. Uh, cl- called the, the Fragile Bridge. Uh, we'll we'll put a, a link to it in the show notes. I still remember reading it. It was, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. Yeah, and it, oh it illustrated so well the differences in thinking, you know, and especially when it comes to deal making between an American, a typical American party, let's say someone coming straight from New York City uh, into China and dealing with someone in China who seemed to be very polished and, you know, used to the, Western ways but actually still thinks very much in a Chinese way and all the conflict he can create so that, that's a good uh, good little book uh, quick uh, quick quick read but anyway to get back to the topic Andrew is actually uh, now in Mexico has been for some time and he is a an expert in uh, negotiating and um, how to say I would let you introduce yourself but the main topic of today is... Not really about manufacturing in China, but actually more about manufacturing leaving China and what what is uh, leading a lot of companies, especially American ones, to consider leaving China. So, hi Andrew, how are you doing? Thanks for joining us.
1: I'm not. I'm doing really well. Uh, it's uh, great. great to be here. I've uh, been reading you for forever, for a very long time. <laughs> Uh, so yes. you're, you're one of the first yeah. uh, one of the first people I started reading uh, when I was getting up to speed on, on manufacturing in China. So mm. it's, it's interesting that we're talking now uh, when yes. my view is that manufacturing is not necessarily leaving China, but it's spreading. It, it's it's um, it, it's moving to other places. Not I'm not saying that the, the China manufacturing economy is going to be a thing of the past. But for, you know, and mostly I'm going to be speaking about, when I, when I talk about the West, I'll be talking about the mm-hmm. United States and, and, and uh, Europe, especially Northern Europe. Mm-hmm. So for, uh, you know, for the West, for um, Americans and Europeans, it's necessary to diversify supply chains, necessary to, to move supply chain and uh, to make uh, redundant supply chains. Mm-hmm. That means right. you've got to start looking beyond China. Just a little bit of background. I moved to China. I, I, I moved to China proper. I, I lived in Shanghai. I started living in Shanghai in 2002, and I lived there until uh, 2010. But prior to that, I had been living in Asia. Um, to, to name the cities, I was in Hong Kong. I was in Taipei. I was in Kyoto in, in Japan. Uh, so I had been. I've been in China, in Asia since about 1996. I had been in Greater China. And what I've noticed now is that so many people like me, so many Americans who have uh, lived and worked and uh, developed relationships in China, now find it difficult to do business in other places. China, uh, made, China made it very easy to do business uh, in China, especially manufacturing, because the other special economic zones and, and government policy, those five-year plans, made, made it pretty integrated and pretty streamlined. And the extreme example of this is, of course, the Canton Fair, which used to be yeah. annual. But now I guess it's just ongoing uh, or several times a year. And they, it's just, you know, it's, it's a one stop shop for international business. And when American manufacturers and American brands come to places like Mexico for the first time, one of the things that shocks them is that it, it's all DIY. It's all do it yourself and i think that this is one of the big trends we'll be looking at uh as we look at what what i've been calling globalism 2.0. Yeah,
0: that's pretty interesting and um you explained that actually you have a podcast uh called globalism globalism 2.0, right? Okay. Yes. Can you can you summarize a little bit what what you call globalism 2.0 and why 2.0?
1: All right. Globalism one, globalism classic for us, for people our age. Historians will argue that globalism has been going on since the Bronze Age and before the Bronze Age. L- let's talk about globalism uh, as for, for us, people our general age, uh, as globalism as starting after World War Two. Uh, with the beginning of the WTO and the World Bank, and uh, well, not WTO, but beginning of the World Bank and the and the United Nations, that began globalism one. Globalism or globalism classic. Globalism mm-hmm. one was characterized by U.S. leadership, U.S. and European leadership, um, basically spreading their rules and their operating system around the world, and everyone else had to follow that that operating system. And this was. Um, an outgrowth and an evolution of the old pre-World War II colonial system where Britain had the, the empire, the, the, the sun never, right. the sun never set on the British empire. Mm-hmm. That sort of gave way to this globalism one point, uh, you know, old classic globalism where the U S made the rules. Mm-hmm. The, the, that yeah. ended, I don't know when exactly that ended. I, I, I'm sticking my, um, my my pin in uh, the, the the calendar at um when was it i think it was october 8 2020 uh, or 2018 when did um when um mike pence gave his speech at the heritage foundation starting the the cold war between us and china <laughs> uh that pretty much ended globalism one point 0 the new globalism we're in, and globalism is going to exist. The United States may not be running things. The United States may not even be involved in the global economy after 2025. I don't think it's going to be that extreme, but that's the trend we're heading towards. Um, global, globalism is going to continue. It just may not star. It may not have the United States in a starring role or in a, in a, in a central policy-making role. So when I'm talking about globalism 2.0, what we're in now going forward, there are five big characteristics that I look at. Number one, the U.S. leadership fades. U.S. leadership continues to, to fade from the global scene regardless of internal politics. You know, even if there's a Republican, if there's a Democrat, it doesn't really matter. The U.S. is going to stop being the, the, the one and only uh, authoritative voice in international trade. Number two, we're going back to a period of spheres of influence. And when I first wrote this a few years ago, I was looking at Russia as potentially having a, a large sphere of influence. Clearly, that that's fading. Uh, and the main ones are going to be U.S. and China. But we, you know, what I'm seeing here is Latin America is is emerging into a. Uh, it was trying to emerge into a trading bloc. Southeast Asia is not going to have much of a choice but to strengthen uh, ASEAN. Uh, Africa is, is trying to start a trade group. The EU is, of course, very a- active. And India is now becoming uh, much more assertive in international, uh, you know, in, in forming its own sphere of influence. So we're going to go back to this period of a sphere of influence where people within your your trade group get preferential treatment and and duty-free imports and exports, and outsiders don't. Mm -hmm. Number three, global institutions are crumbling, and they're going to give way to these overlapping trade agreements. And this is what we're seeing in Asia now with CPTPP, and with ASEAN and the, the new expanded ASEAN, meanwhile the WTO and World Bank are having less and less of an impact in the world. Mm. Now, this was the the sanctions that the U.S. and Europe put on Russia after the Ukraine uh, invasion. It's sort of a double edged sword on this point. So, if the point is that global institutions are fading, the, uh, the United States and and Europe sort of counterindicated here because they were very effective in leveling institutional sanctions on Russia, things especially the, the Swift uh, settlement uh, settlement system. Mm-hmm. So that would seem to argue uh, that global institutions are still strong. But if you look at a map of who took part in these sanctions and who mm-hmm. stayed out of these sanctions, you know, most of the emerging world, most of uh, emerging mm-hmm. economies stayed out of the sanctions and it 's just the United States, Australia and, and Europe that are, you know, that are leading the charge, so it's sort of this might be the last gasp of the old global institutions because now what China and to a lesser extent Russia are going to do are going to, be to, to work to, are, are going to develop workarounds to these global institutions that are now being yeah. i don 't want to say weaponized but are being used uh, to, to implement policy. Uh, number four, and this is another one we're seeing uh, very well, uh, technology is being increasingly politicized. And if China gets this, I don't think the U.S. gets this. The U.S. is relying on a lot of private business to uh, carry a lot of water uh, for national policy. And, you know, Elon Musk is the one that comes to mind where he's basically uh, underwriting a lot of the united states uh, space program but he's a private individual uh, and he owns this technology so technology is going to be increasingly politicized and i think this puts the united states at a little bit of a disadvantage we're also going to see huge competition among uh, technical standards around the world right now the united states and the uh and the UK tend to create all the all the technical standards that manufacturers have to, to 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 follow and have have to meet, and China wants that. China wants in on that standard setting, oh, yes. and they're they're making big moves. And the final one, and again, I think this favors China over the US in the short term. Uh, number five is the line between government and corporation is blurring away to nothing. And it's getting very, very hard to know who is a private actor, who is a government actor, and when. And in China, they've always been comfortable having the national champions, uh, even when it, you know, even when it put their their business and their brand at risk, like with Huawei. Uh, China has always stood by its national champions. The United States has always had a different relationship uh, between government and corporations. The government tends to not dictate. Policy to corporates in the United States, it's more of the opposite. The, the corporates tend to uh, try to influence government policy in the U.S. So the United States still has, the United States may not benefit greatly from this shift in globalism, from the old style globalism, which was an extension of U.S. power, to this new globalism where it's much more anyone's, anyone's game. It's, it's up for grabs. And On the ground, China has – a lot of this is China's to win or lose. China is in a pretty good situation right now to make gains during this new globalism. But China has always been its own worst enemy. So when thing you know, just as things are looking good and China can, you know, the, the, whatever empire in Chinese history you're discussing, just when things are looking good and, it, you know, you can expand and you can make progress, that's when um, things collapse. Yeah,
0: so it it's not, there's, it, it's <laughs> not a
1: clear, there's no clear winner or loser in this, but this is how I see the, the development.
0: Yeah, and- like every time you, you write or you 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 speak about some 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 of these mega trends, I'm always nodding my head. Yes, 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 yes. This sounds so 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 true, yes, yes. <laughs> um but there's something that you say on uh one of your recent podcasts that I'm gonna have a lot of importers, you know, uh sit down and think, because this one might catch them by surprise. What is a how to say a bad scenario for American importers and in general, you know, any company that has products manufactured in China and sold in the USA? Well, what is a, a bad scenario in the next two, three, four years that they have to take into account in their planning? Can, can you talk about this a little bit? Uh, my
1: number one concern is Adverse regulations, bad regulations, and not the direct regulations, but the unintended consequences. And this is what we're seeing in the United States now, where the in the United States right now, just about anyone in Congress can 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 make a trade rule, can 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 propose a, a law or a bill having to do with with trade uh, and having to do with U.S.-China trade. And ever since the uh, the Pence speech at the Heritage Foundation, the United States has been in a de facto cold war with China. So we've been seeing lots and lots of regulations. We're seeing the, there, there are three classes of regulations that you need to be uh, concerned about. One is old regulations that have sort of not been, uh, not, not been very diligently uh, executed or imposed. Uh, things like most favored nation. Uh, regulations and just uh, uh, the, 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 uh, F, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and um, the, uh, the, the, the Foreign Investor Act. These have been on the books for forever, but no one's really followed them. And now you're going to see these things get ramped up. So if you are an importer, your compliance on existing laws is going to be high. You know, you're going to be spending more, spending more money, spending more time, and spending more more sanity, trying to comply with existing rules that are being implemented in a in a new or more stringent way. Number two, however, is more dangerous, and this is the new rules, and a, a lot of. Uh, a lot of these new rules are going to pop up, and we saw these under the uh, the, the second half of the Trump administration when they were uh, they had whole classes of, of products that couldn't be imported, classes of yes. products that couldn't be exported, uh, and lots of new restrictions. I'm not talking about tariffs yet; that's class three. Mm. So class two is going to be all these new rules, like you got to certify that your products aren't being made with slave labor from Xinjiang, right? Right. Okay, where's the form for that? There is no form for that. What's the procedure for that? There is no procedure for that. Yes. Who makes the decisions about that?
0: We don't know who makes the
1: decisions about that.
0: Because Customs and border, right, I guess, in the U.S.? We don't know. Uh,
1: we don't, we don't okay. know or not. It could be Customs. It could be mm. Immigration. It, it could be Treasury and Finance. It could be the mm. SEC. We, we have no idea. You know, these... This is what I'm, what I'm so concerned about. These politicians who have a base in, you know, in, in rural United States or in urban, it doesn't really matter. They are now going after 2022, after the midterm elections uh, this year in November, mm-hmm. the United States is going to, there's a strong chance the United States is going to shift to a de facto one party system. Where the only competition, the only real political competition is not between Republicans and Democrats, but between Republicans and Republicans. Mm. And how are they going to compete? They're going to compete by being more and more MAGA, more and more America first. Mm. And who makes the the easiest target for this? China. Of course. Now, if you want to impress your constituency in Arkansas, what do you do? You're going to make a rule that says any importer must certify that Christianity isn't being persecuted. Christians aren't being persecuted in the, the country of origin. Okay? Where's the paperwork for that? Where's the form for that? Who makes the decisions on that? We don't know. So right. this is the the big this is the big problem facing um, I say American uh, business American businessmen, but it's really everyone. But it's mostly American. If you're importing into the United States, you're going to have to comply with a lot of new rules that sounded good when they were announced in Washington, but are now a nightmare when you are trying to do the paperwork and you are trying to comply. And this yeah, is going to be absolutely. your big problem. Compliance is going to be increasingly difficult and increasingly expensive. And that leads to number three, the third set of problems or the third set of new laws that Americans uh, and Europeans have to worry about, which is the tariffs. Those tariffs that went on the books in the last uh, administration, just about everyone agrees they're a bad idea and everyone agrees they're contributing to inflation, but they're not going anywhere and there's no serious conversation to pull those tariffs off. And the only way they're going to pull those tariffs off is if a a new Republican Congress replaces them with something more, you know, more stringent or more expensive or or more difficult. So I'm not really worried about uh, an American uh, or a European procurement manager coming to a deal with a Chinese factory manager. That, I think, is going to continue unabated. The problem is going to be getting your goods from the factory to the port in, in Ningbo or in, in you know in Shenzhen, because on the Chinese side you're going to have the same you know you're going to have tit for tat regulations. For every bad American regulation, the Chinese will feel unpatriotic if they don't match it with a bad Chinese regulation. So well, it you, might be
0: it might be much clearer and much better targeted, right? Yeah, it'll still be bad, though.
1: <laughs> it'll be clearer. You'll know why the shipment can't leave the factory. But the shipment still may not be able to leave the factory. And um, you know, it's, the, it's going to be the war of the bureaucrats. And in the, in the war of the bureaucrats, um, the the loser is, is the procurement and the, the procurement manager and the factory manager. We, we've reached a point where not. And, and I think this is probably occurring in, in Europe as well. Bad economics has become good politics, or or bad international. A bad uh, international economics has become good domestic politics.
0: Right. Uh, right. I'm very yeah, concerned it's about this in
1: the United States. I'm concerned about it in France too.
0: Yes, yeah, true, true. But it's, it's yeah, it's been very, very clear in the U.S. I mean, I think everybody who watches and and listens to the politicians, you know, can feel that beating China up is always popular. You know, they always Always. earn points when they do that. That's the point, right? (laughs) Yeah. And
1: that's right now the the U.S. government is still still split between Democrats and Republicans. Mm -hmm. After the midterms in uh, November, there's a good chance it will be a much more Republican government. Right. And there's no one knows for sure, but there's a good chance that by first quarter 2025, we are looking at a Republican-controlled Washington, U.S. government. And then the competition is between Republicans who can come up with the toughest, most anti-China laws.
0: Right. So, so we don't have so, that
1: much time. And that's the subtext here. We're not, yes, yes. You're nodding, yes. I'm nodding. Everyone who's listening to us is nodding their heads going, yes, yes, yes. What I'm saying is we've got a timetable. We've got a timer on this. Mm -hmm. And by first quarter 2025, the situation uh, between the U.S. and China could get just incredibly bureaucratic, incredibly expensive, and just not worth the profit.
0: Right. And someone might get, I don't know, five containers being shipped and underwater, completely refused for entry into the U.S. for some obscure reason. We're not, we're not
1: we it's not even that two boats in front of you might be having trouble and your mm-hmm. boat is is doing circles in Sandy, in the uh, outside of San Diego. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be you. It can be two, it could be someone in front of you online. That's how bad this situation is going to be. You have yep. no control over your logistics anymore, or you won't after these new laws go into effect.
0: Mm. Right. So in, Practical terms, yeah. So that means if, you, if you're if you listening to this podcast, if you sell a lot of products on the American market, have you already implemented China Plus One? And if not, what are you waiting for, basically, right? And, what, what are you waiting for? And maybe if you're already at China Plus One, well, maybe the Plus One, be it um, Vietnam, Mexico, or some other place, you know how to grow that uh, so that most of the products are made in uh, in that other country right but what about is it going to to be targeted at products assembled in china mm-hmm. i guess it will also hit the products that are assembled in, you know let's say in in, in close to hanoi with uh, i don't know 20 different parts coming from South China because it's... I've been
1: been asking about this for years. No one knows. Right. The answer seems to be it depends on how how picky the U.S. wants to be.
0: Yes, yes. So to me, just forgetting about all these issues, uh, all the changes that are going to happen based on your scenario... When when I think of a company that buys a lot of components in China and have them assembled in another country mm-hmm. to ship them and sell them in yet another country, that's already sort of nonsense to me uh, because the supply chain is longer or more complex. You're adding a lot of time, you're adding risks, and in in some cases, you you're also adding costs. So... Just to say this is made in Vietnam, this is made in India, this is made in in Mexico. In a lot of cases, it doesn't really make sense, except if you're working on relocating also the, the sources of these components, right? But I see a lot of companies that do the switch, that move assembly, but they don't really get to work on moving the components, because it's it's just convenient. Uh, it's a lot of work to to move an entire supply chain if you if you if if your products have um, a long bit of material. So
1: if, if it's even possible, there are materials and right. there are processes that right now you can't source outside of
0: China. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So a lot of headaches for a lot of people, basically, right? <laughs> a lot no. of headaches, and
1: unfortunately, they're non-economic. In the, the source of the problems is non-economic. If right. yes. the factory managers and the, and the, uh, and the um, buyers around the world would have would, would be able to sort out whatever problems they have, and that's what we're used to. We're used to dealing with Chinese factory managers and engineers who, when faced with a problem, will go off, smoke a couple of cigarettes in the stairwell, and come back with a workaround. There's no workaround to this. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, There's no workaround okay. to
1: excess bureaucracy other than moving your supply chain. Right,
0: right, right. Do you see Vietnam as potentially a target? I because I was I'm- living in Vietnam.
1: Vietnam mm. is, uh, it's a big question mark. First mm. of all, Vietnam, it's it's a good alternative to China or it, it, it would have been a good alternative to China in like, 2015, Vietnam is getting crowded. Oh, yeah. Vietnam is, is already full. <laughs> They're not really looking for the kinds of small, you know, small runs that made Shenzhen such a, such a, such a unique place. If you are, you know, Samsung, Vietnam will accommodate you. <laughs> uh, if you're you know, Apple, Vietnam will accommodate you. Uh, if you have a, a cool idea for a new Pet accessory, not so much.
0: Right.
1: Now, the flip side, which is I think where you're going with this, will the U.S. start to apply these same laws and regulations to Vietnam? Mm -hmm. Or will the United States insist that even if your supply chain goes through Thailand and Vietnam, it doesn't contain any China components or materials? That is the big question.
0: Yeah, a lot of... Questions here. Yes,
1: could the U.S. do this? Yes, the U.S. could do this, and this is exactly the kind of uh, unintended consequences I'm I'm afraid of. Hmm. Like right now, for instance, here's an example: of the kind of thing like this is what keeps me up at night. Mexico's economy is heavily dependent on its own trade agreement with North, with uh, United States and Canada. It's called the North American Canadian Mexico Agreement. Or North NACMA, uh, or on the Mexican side of the border, it's called TMEC. There is a rule in uh in, in, in NACMA uh, or TMEC that says that no party of this treaty can sign a treaty with a non-market economy. This was supposed to be the anti-China clause of um of the NAFTA II or NMCA. And North American, North America, sorry, US. It's USMCA, US, um, USCMA, US Canada Mexico Agreement. So mm-hmm. there is a Clause uh, Thirty Two, Paragraph Ten of uh, USCMA says that no member of this treaty can do business with a non-market economy. And this was the anti-China clause of the USCMA, but. Mm-hmm. Vietnam is a non-market economy as well. It's, um, the U.S. is the only one that classifies this. But the U.S. classifies um, of the uh, Asian economies, uh, China and Vietnam are not non-market economies. And Mexico already, and TPP and Mexico already has uh, an agreement with, with Vietnam. So it's very up in the air how picky the U.S. wants to be when it starts creating these new trade, trade laws. But there's a lot to work with. And if the U.S. starts banning uh, non-market economies or if it starts banning uh, anyone whose supply chain runs through China, it's going to be extremely disruptive for Southeast Asia.
0: Yes. Oh, absolutely. And for you, you know, for
1: those of us that do business there.
0: Yes. Oh, yes. So what about Mexico? Because you've been there now for for some time. Have you seen a lot of movement of supply chains out of Asia to Mexico for Products that are sold in the USA and Canada? I've heard more than I've seen, but
1: I'm hearing a lot. Now, I'm out of it right now. I am down south. I'm in a smaller city. I'm just studying the language and, and, and studying uh, the economy. Going up north, you, there, there, there's a program called um, IMM, IMEX, or the Maculadora program. And the Maculadora program is the closest thing Mexico has to a special economic zone. This is like an SEZ in China. So it's like Suzhou, but it's not a city. It is um, the it's individual factories. So uh, Mexico has set up this Maculadora program, which is very good for companies that want to do business with the United States or Canada, because it allows for duty-free transport into the united states into the united states market and into uh, canada the, the idea basically is with the maclador program uh, if you're an american brand if you're a ford if you're general motors that's who really makes use of it you can ship your parts across the border into mexico and you can buy parts relatively duty-free uh from abroad for this factory and mm-hmm. produce your your finished good produce your car produce your truck as long as that finished product is re-exported back to the United States or to another market. In other words, as long as you're not producing for sale in the Mexican market, the Maculadora program um, allows you to import raw materials and components uh, tax and duty-free and uh, gives you other trade protections and other legal protections that you simply don't get in, mm-hmm. uh, you know, outside of, of of SECs, outside. Mm, so of, so, of,
0: so this places. is in, uh, in, in Tijuana, just behind San Diego. This is in uh, Ciudad Juarez, just behind El Paso. This is the kind of places, right? Basically, yes. mostly they, along they, the border.
1: They cluster up around the border or around ports. Mm. Um, there, there's a, uh, there are some big ports that also attract a lot of, a lot of maculadores. Um, they, the, but they just cluster up and, and they form a region. Uh, but the, the legal authority is, uh, resides with the, the corporation itself, with the IMX company. So you can put an IMX company just about everywhere, anywhere, I think, but they tend to be near the infrastructure. And Mexico has great infrastructure in certain places, like along the border and along the ports. The ports tend to be very good. Um, and then the, the cross-border highways are very good. And they're building a train, uh, a rail line. As well, and they just expanded uh, the Mexico airport. They just basically mm-hmm. doubled the size. So yeah. infrastructure is pretty strong for you know, if you want to sell into the American, into the U.S. market.
0: Right, right. So talking about um, the political developments and in in the U.S. and all the risks that it represents for for a lot of companies. What about Mexico? Are they do they tend mm-hmm. to try and favor Mexico just to hurt China?
1: Do the well, not
0: care? OK, it's not to hurt China.
1: Now, you know, in China, if, if the government calls you um, an arrogant Westerner, you're done. Mm-hmm. That's the signal that you have overstepped. In, in Mexico, they have the same idea, but the, the phrase is exploiter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you're European or if you're American, you might be an exploiter. So that's who Mexico is taking aim at. Mexico, in Latin America, Mexico and the rest of Latin America view China as the spoiler to American authority. Mexicans and Latin America have um, a, I'll say, love-hate relationship with the, Amer- with Amer- with the United States, but there's not that much love. Uh, a, a need-hate relationship with the United States. So mm-hmm. when they make these rules, they do it with an eye towards keeping the United States out. So Mexico has been, and uh, the new, well, not new, but the president, AMLO, uh, Andres um, uh, Andrés Martínez Lopez al uh, or just AMLO, he has been on a nationalization kick. So he just nationalized the electric gro- uh, the electric grid, the domestic one. Mm-hmm. He nationalized uh, the oil industry, although that was already pretty nationalized before. And um, he just nationalized the lithium market. Lithium mm-hmm. is one of those rare earth metals that China is so interested in because that's what drives, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's what powers, no pun intended, that's what powers mobile, mobile batteries. So right. all your mobile phones and in the future, all your electric vehicles are going to be powered by lithium. And that brings China, that's one of the things bringing China to Latin America. So, all of Latin America views China with a mix of fear and admiration and uh, and optimism. They think that they can play China off against the United States. Mm -hmm. Mexico does this to a lesser extent than, say, Brazil or Argentina or Venezuela, but that is the role of China in this region. China has been very active with the Belt and Road Initiative in Central America and South America. Not so much in Mexico because of that rule in, uh, in mm-hmm. um, USCMA. Okay. So you won't mm-hmm. see any BRI activities in, in Mexico, mm-hmm. but Mexico is also teaming up with Latin America. Mexico is sort of trying to create a, 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 a regional leadership role for itself. Others have tried this. It, it never really worked. But Mexico is trying to create almost like a um, a trade group for lithium exporters. That's going to put it in very close contact with China, because China is yeah. going to be uh, very interested uh, in the, the lithium and the rare earth metals uh, markets in Latin America and you know, Central America. And the, these countries tend to be, the Latin American countries, they tend to be uh, very nationalistic and populist they tend to be corrupt they tend to um, be very uh, try to be independent of the United States and that makes them perfect candidates for influence from Chinese actors right so I think we're going to see a lot of uh, formal influence in uh, of China we'll see a lot of formal influence in Latin America but it's the informal influence it's the bribery the corruption the nepotism uh, all of that stuff that Chinese negotiators, for, for some reason, tend to be better at. Than-
0: <laughs> they have a bit of experience.
1: I'm not sure why, but they tend to be better at it than people from the U.S. or Europe.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, so um, we're going to be writing so here.
1: The, the subtext here is just because you're leaving China doesn't necessarily mean you're leaving the China supply chain. You're going to see a lot of Chinese companies and a lot of Chinese practices follow you across the Pacific uh, to Mexico and Latin America. And it's a concern. But what I will say is in Mexico, you do have a greater legal protection and greater legal standing just because the government of Mexico is so sensitive about that that um, U.S. or TMEC treaty. Mm-hmm. Um, they need that and they're not going to jeopardize it. So that's That's going to keep that's going to keep BRI at bay uh, in Mexico, but it's not going to help with your other problems of bad laws being passed by the United States. (laughs) The United States, we have the Monroe Doctrine, which no one's talked about for for, for 40 years, Mm -hmm. but the Monroe Doctrine was this informal U.S. declaration that Latin America was part of the U.S. sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, the MAGA people are talking about the Monroe Doctrine again. And this is a, just a huge warning bell for anyone in Latin America. They do not like hearing about the Monroe Doctrine. Mm-hmm. That is really? the, that that is the um, remember we uh, in, when China had the year, the uh, century of humiliation and it was carved mm-hmm. up into the spheres of influence. That's mm-hmm. how Latin Americans view the Monroe Doctrine.
0: Oh, I see, I see. We want our freedom, basically. Don't come and tell us what to do. We want to do what we want, and if we want to do business with China, we do business with China, yeah. Um, Yeah, The United States has a
1: terrible reputation here. The United States, uh, the government here, has a terrible, terrible reputation because of its history of interfering with domestic politics, both in terms of things like the Monroe Doctrine, but internally, the CIA, uh, fomenting coups, and interfering with with local governments and local elections, uh, we're not. You know, the United States is not beloved here, but um, the, the 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 government leaders have partition. You know, they, they differentiate between the government, the politics, and the business. China used to do this, but now U.S. and China are not separating business from from mm-hmm. politics, and that is what's. You know, I th- that's why we're talking on the podcast here today.
0: Right, right. Yeah. China doesn't doesn't tend to differentiate anyway. Um, in general. Yes. It's it's one big relationship and everything falls together, right? Okay. You're well, the party that... boys. It's all about the party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well that's been quite interesting. We're running out of time soon. So where can people hear more about your analysis and your 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 descriptions about the, the, the Mexican business environment and economy and, and, and so on. Okay. The, the,
1: the best place to go is my podcast, globalism 2.0 or just globalism2.com. That is uh, where I've been all my, my, my um, ideas and theories about the future of globalism uh, are there lately though. I've been focusing more on uh, an old course of mine business environment analysis. uh, And I'm, On on the podcast, Globalism 2.0, I'm going to spend the next three or four weeks doing a business environment analysis on Mexico, Mm -hmm. focusing on what I call the China Pats, people like me and you who have all our business experience in China, how we go about setting up a new operation or expanding our existing operation into a new market that isn't part of the China or Asia business model. Where it's mm-hmm. completely well, different. That... So, Globalism yeah. 2.0 or globalism2.com for that. And uh, on LinkedIn, uh, it's the best place to follow me because that's where I post and that's where I am, I am writing. And I'm thinking about starting a course, an online course on business environment analysis that would be open, you know, focusing on China paths. So, if people have interest in that, in a, business, a course on business environment analysis, uh, focusing on Mexico and then Latin America, Find me at globalism2 at gmail.com um, or find me on LinkedIn, Andrew Hubert, H-U-P like Peter, E-R-T, and connect with me on LinkedIn and uh, we will discuss the, the upcoming course.
0: Great. We'll, we'll include the, the few links that you mentioned in, in the show notes so people can, can find you easily. Thank you so much, Andrew. It was really, really a great pleasure. So let's let's see how... All of these things develop. And, yeah,
1: let's uh, see, maybe. Hopefully I'll see you in Hong Kong sometime, but maybe you'll see me in Mexico
0: City. Correct, yes. All right, thanks a lot, Andrew. And thanks for Thank you All right, have a good one, thanks. Thanks again for listening
1: to this podcast brought to you by the Sophies Group. We're on a mission to provide you with everything
0: you need to manufacture effectively in Asia, including inspections, auditing, new product development support, contract manufacturing, 3PL warehousing and
1: fulfilment and much, much more across Asia's key manufacturing areas. Visit us at that's sofeast.com, that's S-O-F-E-A-S-T dot com to learn more and get help. If you've enjoyed the podcast today, please do rate, review and share because it will really help others discover us too.